Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, listeners, to episode 87. This is the podcast. And Jeff, how are you this evening? I'm feeling really good this evening, Dave. Really good, really you good. say? Yep. I had a good day. I got uh, lots of exercise. Got to spend some time at the pool. under the Nice. S- in the sunshine. It's been great. The yeah. swimming pool? The cesspool? What the, kind of pool was the it? The swimming pool, yes. Okay. Yeah. Not the cesspool. Right. I just had to ask. Exactly. That's now. You know how I, ooh, <laughs> you know how I am with my precision? <laughs> yes. Did yes. you, did you um, I don't know, what's the... What's the phrase we want? You didn't uh, trip the light fantastic, cut the rug, hey, just, scrape the bottom. Did you just, do something just, in the pool? Just some phrase for, for swimming here? I think there ought to be. I swam. I dived. I went down the curly cue <laughs> water slide. It, it was very nice. He swam. He dived. He curly cued. <laughs> Were you by yourself? No, no. I was with my whole family. Okay. Yeah. There's a, a very nice kind of public pool not, not too far from our house. It's nice. Great. Yeah. All but right. now the, the storms are brewing out there. You the wa- storm is a brewing, but they're calling for really hot temperatures both tomorrow and, and the tomorrow of tomorrow. The, and the tomorrow and the next day. Yes, it's going to be 95 and 97. Oh, that doesn't sound too pleasant. That's hot. That's very Maybe hot. we should just stay inside and podcast. I, I agree. Okay. It's very comfortable down here in the Vomitorium. It's Vomitorium East, situated uh, next to the lovely Swan Lake. Yep, yep. And, and you're doing well? I'm okay. You're okay? I'm feeling a little punchy. Yeah, I can tell that. Yeah, you can tell. I can, I'm feeling the vibes. Yeah. Are you? Okay. Yep. Well, why don't we start with our shout out this evening? Let's do that. Okay. Who do we got? Well, this goes to one, Johannet Jacobs. Oh, Johannet. Yeah, Johannet. And uh, this is the daughter of Jaap Jacobs. Yes, who uh, I believe has received a shout out He also earlier. got yes. his shout out. Yep. And this uh, lovely young woman is 16. And uh, according to her father, who, you know, put this forward for her, when we talked about the storms being unleashed to stop Aeneas's progress, mm-hmm. Johannet immediately remarked on the similarity with Homer. Mm-hmm. Ah. There's a sharp young lady right yes, there. Yes, an yeah. astute listener. She yes. knows her classics. That's really impressive. That's fantastic. And yeah. I understand she's, uh, she's studying Latin. And uh, takes Latin at school and is doing very well. Excellent. We're glad to hear that. Um, and she's, the, she's over in, uh, in Scotland? She's right? in Scotland. Yep. And um, I believe we have tried some fake Scotland accents before. Yeah. And we got a lot of... Uh, we got taken to task. Grief and criticism. Yeah. Should I'm, we care about that? I, I can tell by just where you're looking at me, you want to double down. That's right. <laughs> no. <laughs> I told you my uh, Scotland horror story, right? The one, the one where you were fogged in in Edinburgh? That no. One? No, 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 no. That's every time I go. But this was the first time I went in 1997. Okay. And I stopped off with Mrs. Noe. This was uh, pre-children at the little gift shop. Was it 97? 99. Sorry. January 99. Yeah. The little gift shop um, next to the castle, you know, the Edinburgh Castle. Yeah, sure. Right. And just trying to be friendly and strike up a conversation with the clerk as I was buying my woolen, obligatory woolen scarf. Yes. I said, so do you live here in Edinburgh? <laughs> knowing that Scotland is a is a large place and people do commute to their place of work. Of course. And he said, No, I live in Arizona and I commute from there. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> oh, really? Yes, that's he, what he said. Man, just that jagged sarcasm. I can see his face now. Oh my goodness. And this is what? Uh 
are we going on 30 years? It's 20, a solid 23 years later. Wow. And it still stings. Man, you st- it still hurts. Yeah. Really? That'll teach me to try to be friendly to a squawk. So did you just, just take the scarf and just kind of... You know, well, I paid you, for the scarf. Yeah, I wanted to just take it, but I paid for it. And you and, slunk out? And I slunk. So we slunking? We slunked right out of there because... Yeah. Where's that guy get off? That seems like that seems like an unnecessary harshness. I think he was really, really bored. <laughs> I, well, I can imagine because that. this is a gift shop, a yeah, and number two, it's January, so it isn't the prime season, right? Right. So right. what's he got to do? Right. Just stand around and insult the customers? <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. Oh, so, but back, back to Johannet. Yes, please. Yeah. So she's ta- she's taking Latin. She's right. doing great. Yep. yep. Took a little bit of uh, per- paternal paternal persuasion to get her to start learning Latin. Every time her father explains English or Dutch words by pointing out the Latin etymology, did dads do that? Uh, I can see you doing that. I do it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> About four or five times today. Yeah. <laughs> she adopts a Scottish accent in retaliation. Oh, I'd love to hear that. This is great. Yeah, yeah. and uh, bilingual in English and Dutch. Yeah, that's impressive. Yes, and I'd like to say something about the name Johannet, if I may. Please. What a beautiful name. Yeah. You know, back in your day and my day, when we were growing up and being named, mm-hmm. there were a lot of monosyllable names, right? You didn't have your Masons and your Ethans and your Logans and your Aidens and your Elliots and so on. Right. It was Joe and Jim and Bob and... Phil. Phil. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> funny to say. Dave and Jeff yeah. and Jert. Jert. Jub. Yeah, yeah. Bort. Exactly. Yeah. But now there are much more. And you know, so I'm kind of inclined to that. But in, in, in later years, I've gotten a little more um, made peace with the the unique names that are coming out a lot. You're okay now. with it? Yes. And yeah. I, I especially like this one, Johannet. Isn't yeah, that pretty? That's, that's beautiful. I don't believe I've, I've encountered it before. I don't think I have. Yeah. You know, it's a feminine form of Johan or yep. John, right? Yep. Uh, very nice. So thank you, Johannet, both for your beautiful name, your bilinguality, yes. for your catching of the Homeric references and listening to our podcast. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, if we ever come to Scotland, I'll see if I can buy a scarf. <laughs> and hope it goes much better. Yeah, so Jeff, what are we giving the people tonight? Well, we're going to continue um, our look into book two. Uh, I get, as always, I have no idea how far we're going to get. Three, four uh, lines, three, probably. Four, right. So we're going to uh, do our best to wrap up our look at book two and maybe get into book three, but not so sure. So we've got to get, if we've got to get Aeneas out of that uh, burning city. We've got to get him in this this um, ragtag bunch of Trojans in a boat and, and onto um, their destiny. Yes. Yeah. A number of misadventures, which will be flashback. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then we're going to go through book three and land in book four. And book four will take us back to uh, the present time. That's correct. Uh, where Aeneas is with Dido in uh, in Carthage. That's right. Yeah. But who knows? Who knows when we'll get there? Uh, I don't know. What is it? It's um, it's June of twenty two, right? Yeah, it is June of twenty two. So we've got some time. We got some time. Yeah, yeah. We're we're okay. Yeah. All right, so we got an opening quote here, and uh, are you going to read this one? Do I get to read this? Um, I, why don't I read it? I okay. Re- I read this article earlier to the, earlier this morning. Thought, Since you found it and know its content? Yeah. Is that yeah. what you're saying? Yes. Um, but this is a, a really interesting article from by one uh, David Quint. This goes back to 1982 from Classical Journal. Okay. And it's called Painful Memories, Aeneid Book 3 and the Problem of the Past. I, I think this is the same David Quint who wrote uh, Epic and Empire. Oh, is it? That really? We, we have cited on this podcast previously. Okay. I didn't make that connection. Yep, yeah, yeah. I think so. So this guy knows what he's doing. So. Right. So good catch there, Jeff. Let's hear it. So uh, just to kind of set up this quote, because I'm kind of jumping in in medias. 
Um, the article is, is about um, the Trojans, the difficulty that they have on their way from Troy to Italy. And one of the, the difficulties they have is not just these monsters and plagues and famines they right. encounter. It's their inability to kind of let go of their Trojanness. To, to let go of their past? To let go of their past, right? And their identity as Trojans. Okay. Where it kind of, everything is kind of pushing them from... Um, no longer being Trojans, but becoming these proto-Romans. I see. And so there's, there's, um, he's making the argument that they have to let so much uh, of their self-identity uh, behind. Oh, I see. Right? And so it's not just a new Troy in the West. It's something completely different. Right. And that's that's really difficult for them. Yeah. And he and he he, he frames this that you know one of the, the the most important transitions that Aeneas himself has to make is away from his father. Oh yeah. And it's almost this necessity of of his father having to die mm. for Aeneas to really start to kind of embrace these new things. Interesting. Yeah. I was reading an article in the paper this past week about um, a lot of universities and colleges and other institutions, both in Canada and the U.S. Uh, maybe our listeners are even familiar with this listing that uh, they are uh, operating on land that supposedly belonged to indigenous peoples. Yeah. You know this this movement. Yeah. Right. It's called decolonization. Right. Right. And um, it strikes me then that the Trojans have to decolonize themselves. They do. They have to jettison an entire cultural identity. They do. And substitute for it uh, a culture that hasn't really developed yet. That's right. Right. That's a big challenge. Exactly. I mean, in some ways it's not, It's uh, and we'll see this, it's not... Uh, a, the cleanest of breaks. I mean, there are um, these stories and traditions that um, you know uh, early Trojan ancestors came from Italy. So right. there is a there is a kind of full circle here. But um, what Quint is arguing, and I think he's very persuasive, is says that it's they really have to kind of let go of their of their kind of their core identity as Trojans in the present mm. to find their way to this destiny. Was there one um, especially poignant or bitter memory of the past of which they had to let go? Like an insult they received in a gift shop or something? <laughs> Not so quite. It wasn't quite so much. I mean, in Quint's argument, it wasn't so much um, kind of uh, a bitter memory. It's, it's what I took it uh, as kind of his main idea is that they're, they're so traumatized by what they've just lost mm. that um, anything that kind of just, just in the smallest way resembles what um, the the city that they lost, the traditions that they lost, they will jump on it. Um, and so, as we'll see, when the, the first stop that they make, Aeneas just starts building a new city. Right. And it's like this is it. You know, yes. they're, they're basically took kind of two exits off the highway from Troy. It's, okay, new city. Right. It, they're so desperate to kind of, um, you know, to, to recapture what they lost or, mm. or uh, find a way to mourn what they lost, and yeah. fate just says no, 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 no. You have to keep going. Right. It's like when you're on a family road trip, right? And as soon as you leave home. The question, you know, emerges from the back seat. Right? Almost immediately. Yes. Yes. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? No, yeah. we're still in our own driveway. <laughs> so this is all of Aeneas's men. Yes, exactly. Right. 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 So let me read this. We arc. should probably give the people the quote. We should, we should right. So uh, as evidence of this, uh, Quint writes, the oracle at Delos appears to be a dead giveaway. After having been addressed as Dardanidae Duri, only a willful interpreter would not instruct the Trojans to seek out the birthplace of Dardanus. And Caesar's mistake is, is particularly glaring and thus demands the reader's close attention. Perhaps swayed by the injunction to seek out his ancient motherland, Antiquam Exquirite Matrem, Anchises' thoughts about Crete turn to the cult of Sibylle, imported from that island to Troy. His associations of ideas thus parallels the first error which the Trojans commit in Book 3, the choice of Thrace for the site of their new city, a choice which seems to be influenced by the Sochiique Penates of the Thracians. 
In both cases, the Trojans are reassured by religious rites in the alien lands, which are identical, identical to their own. In the episode of Thrace, Virgil reinforces this identity with a replication in the verse itself. And so on and so on and so on. So everywhere they go, the language that they use, okay. um, the words that they hear are words that remind them of their past. I see. And they take that as kind of an invitation to stay. And these are each of the false foundings yes. that we'll find in book three. Right. So they, they bounce from place to place, from Thrace to Delos to Crete um, to the Strophides. Right. And in each place, they're kind of so eager just to kind of start carving up the land and building walls and making laws. And, and in each case, something quite horrible or unsettling happens which mm. tells them move on don't they stop off at actium as well um i believe they do i think they at, do. At actium as well that's a great way for virgil to tie in right recent roman history right yes augustus and the guy who cuts the checks yes exactly right so that's what we're going to give the people tonight maybe if we get to book three. all right <laughs> <laughs> but we've got some business to, to to finish up in book two yeah right? and i like the way that you read that latin there jeff i take it you are a um, a veteran latin student and instructor yourself i have i've you know i've i've been away from teaching the language for, right. for many years i miss it very very much i know but um that's one of the things i love about doing this podcast is it it, it brings me right back into it right yeah so dave yes if if People listening to the podcast would like to learn some Latin mm -hmm. and read some Latin and right. translate some Latin. What would be the best way for them to do that? Well, I can modestly say that this is the best way. <laughs> Maybe it's not the best, but this is a very good way, I'm confident. They should go to latinperdm.com slash LLPSI. The LLPSI stands for Lingua Latina Per Se Illustrata, that fabulous textbook written by Hans Orberg and published by our publisher, our sponsor. Hackett Publishing. That's correct. Yes. And uh, Unit 1, you can log on and check out Unit 1. So this is, uh, I think I'm up to 22 instructional videos now with a live audience and numerous, numerous office hours. And uh, I got recordings of the texts, the chapters, quizzes, assignments, the whole thing. So uh, like the Moss program, it's self-paced, expert, and accessible. And I meet with students each week and uh, answer all of their Latin questions. That's fantastic. So latinperdium.com slash LLPSI. Yes, it's $199. I think it's a really good value. Fantastic. All right, so let's get back into book two here. I think when we left our audience in the previous episode, um, that the, the city was burning and collapsing, the Trojans were being slaughtered, and uh, the Greeks had kind of, they had charged the citadel. Um, Priam had been killed at the altar of Minerva. And Aeneas is, he's frozen in indecision. He doesn't right. know what to do. Is it, should he go to some kind of noble suicide, you know, going down with the ship? Mm. Or um, should he flee the city? So this is where we play that, that Bon Jovi song that you probably loved. Which one? Blaze of Glory. Oh, that's a terrible song. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How could our musical tastes be so different? Shut down. Yeah, that's that a one, great song. That's a terrible song. What, what's so bad about it? it? Well, you know the story behind that song. No. Right. So the, the 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 more famous Bon Jovi song, Wanted Dead or Alive. I like right? that one. Well, they were making this movie, Young Guns. Do okay. you like okay. Wanted Dead or Alive? I've, I've heard it too many times. It's okay. Okay. It's okay. I liked it back in the day, but I don't need to hear it again. It gets a one star from Jeff. No, o I okay, Winkle. Okay. So the the uh, the producers of Young Guns, this this film about Billy the Kid and right. the regulators, uh, they they went to jo Bon Jovi and they said, Hey, can we use that song, Wanted Dead or Alive? Right. Because it's you know it's got that kind of that twangy cowboy feel to it. Yes. And, and it's bon aggressive musically. Yes. And Bon Jovi says that's fine, except it's about it's about touring, right? On a steel horse I ride. Is that really what you want? Mm. And then they said, Well, could you write us a song in that same vein that's more about cowboy stuff? Nice. And John said, I'll do that. 
And so it's... For free, probably. Oh, of course. No, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no money was exchanged. So, right? well, where's the unhappy ending here? Well, it's it's he's ripping off himself to kind of kowtow to this s- stupid movie. Uh-huh. As, as, so I just... I it, it, The whole story just kind of cheapened it for me. Really? Right. And So, so what, what about when we do a clip show? Yeah. Are, are we going to be ripping off ourselves? Of course. And it's, it's going to be so craven. <laughs> right. So when I hear that song, I just hear, oh, it's just a poor man's version of that much better song. Huh. Right. So. Okay. Yeah. I still like it. Okay. That's but what, we know that's I fine. have. Maybe this is why you know so much more about pop culture than I do. Why is that? Because when it comes to pop culture, I have no taste. <laughs> <laughs> back or you to, don't. You don't obsessively read about the backstories behind this stuff. There you go. There you go. Yeah. So right. back to book two. Yes. The encounter with Helen is where we are. Yes. And I think this is so interesting. So as as Aeneas is really strikingly, as we observed last time, he's kind of this weird passive observer of this stuff going on. He kind of stands there while Priam is killed and he's kind of wandering around. He sees Helen in, you know, in, in many ways, the source of the, 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 the origin story of all of this. She's the catalyst. And she's crouching by the, the, an altar of Vesta there. And he thinks to himself, what should I do? And he's, he, he, he's so angry that his first thought is I should take up, take my sword and and kill her. Yes. Right. But Dave, I'm wondering if you could read some Latin. I Uh, would love to. Yes. So starting out in, what is it, line 567? Yeah. Okay. Yam quareo superu nuseram cum limina westi, ser wan tet tacitam se cretin seda latentem, tindari das piccio dunt clarin kendia lucem, erranti passim quacolos percunctiferenti, illa sabin festose versab pergama tucros, et dana umpoi net deserti conjugasirras pri metuens troi yet patriae communis erinus abdidera se sat quarris in visas debat ex arse regnes animo subit irdra cadentem ukiski patriet scelardratas sumera poinas excellent wonderfully done thank you it's Love beautiful it. such beautiful language it and, is oh loaded with uh, elisions those of you who read latin poetry you'll have heard all of those elisions in there yeah where uh, the end of one word and the beginning of the next are pronounced together because of the combinations of vowels and such but it, it makes for rapidity. It, yes, exactly. It moves things along. It just gives Fast. it such a different feel to it. I love it. Right. So here's um, Lombardo's wonderful translation. The more I read his translation, the more I kind of I wish that that was my first encounter yeah. with the translation. Oh, you're just saying that because of Hackett. I'm not saying that. I know you're not. <laughs> <laughs> I really, really like it. I in, think this instead is instead of some of the others that we could mention. Right. Yeah. In, in fact, I, I think this is a superior translation to his own Iliad and Odyssey. Uh-huh. I, I just, I just, he just did a, just a marvelous job with this. Wow. I'm, just, I'm sucked in. But here are his translations, uh, translation of those lines. Now I alone was left when I saw, hiding in the shadows of Vesta's shrine, Helen, daughter of Tyndarius. The bright fires gave me light as I wandered here and there, casting my eyes over everything, fearing the Trojans' anger for Troy's fall. The vengeance of the Greeks and the wrath of her deserted husband, Helen, destroyer alike of her own country and ours, this detestable woman crouched by the altars. My soul flared with a burning desire to avenge Troy and make her pay for her sins. Mm. And I thought this is so interesting. This is such a different Helen that we see um, you know, back home in Sparta in, in, uh, in the Odyssey. Where she's really kind of running the show, you know, she's spiking. You remember she's spiking Menelaus's drink with some right. kind of magic potion to kind yeah, of dull, f- dull his senses. The pharmaca. Yeah, and and she tells the story. No, she was out there. 
mimicking voices. She was in kind of command of the situation. And here we have her just completely abandoned and lost. It's such a haunting image. Do you think that, uh, obviously it's speculative, but, and no doubt a paper has been written on it or maybe even a book. Yeah. That Virgil is deliberately undoing the Homeric uh, portrayal from Odyssey 4? Because um, in Odyssey 4, yeah, as you just described so yeah. nicely, in the home of Menelaus in Sparta, she is saying, no, I was really actually doing something good. I was there. I was helping. I was on I was on the good side. Right. And now it's the complete opposite yeah. portrayal. No, I think that there's something to that. that I think Virgil's saying that um, this is what really this is what really went down. Um, and then Helen, you know, but using her pharmaca and her husband, she's freer to, free, freer to kind of construct this false identity mm. and really say, no, you know, no, I was, you know, I was uh, I was on your guys' side the whole time. Mm. Right. But um, I think this, this is interesting that um, I don't think, you know, Virgil, like Homer, doesn't just throw anything in there for the sake of throwing it in. No. So he tells us that, you know, Helen is crouching at Vesta's shrine. Hmm. You know, and for the Romans, you know, the, um, the Vesta as as the, um, the the goddess that keeps the home fires of the empire burning. Right. Um, like, uh, like Minerva, like Diana associated with virginity. Right. And just the irony of Helen who, you know, who's... Um, Known for her promiscuity. Right, exactly. Her sexual crimes kind of started this whole thing. Right. Um, the irony of her crouching at Vesta's shrine. The last place where she's going to get pity, right? Yeah, exactly. That's the contrast. And yet she does. Because why? Why Why doesn't um, Aeneas run her through? Because he desperately wants to, right? Uh, what does he say? My soul flared with the burning desire, exarce, rigne, sanimo. That's mm -hmm. very nice. Yes. Um, well, I think that I think this is a recurring theme throughout the Aeneid is that I, I know that one of the criticisms of the character of Aeneas is that he's passive, right. as we've seen, right? He's not a he's not a go getter, right? Um, but I think a, a big reason for that is that fate and Venus uh, are they, they show up and they basically tell him, "I know you want to do that, but you can't," right? And so fate has bigger demands and prevents I think Aeneas from from doing the things that we. Might expect him to do in that moment, or even want him to do. Want him to do for the sake of drama, as you know, uh, interested observers. Yeah, and so he's constantly being pulled away from this. That, but I think here too, there's also this really interesting layer is that I think in Venus, in, in as uh, if we look at the Iliad and those scenes with Aphrodite and Paris and, and Helen, you know, uh, Venus has so much of her own reputation invested with Helen. Right, and maybe in some ways she's saying, you know, no, no, look over here. I'm going to show you. It's really the gods that are destroying the city. It's not Helen. Hmm. It's maybe Venus is almost saving some face by allowing Helen to live because she's invested so much of her own reputation in that. Hmm. I don't know, but I think it's one of the layers that's that's kind right. of thrown in here. That's very suggestive. It reminds me of another song that you'll hate. Yeah, um, "Dreams in the Mist." I don't know this song. You know, I think it's hard. These dreams go on. Oh, these dreams, yes. These dreams. Yes, yeah. Go on when I close my eyes. How does the rest of that lyric go? Uh -huh. Every second I'm awake. Na, 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 na. I, I don't know. I usually change the station as soon as I hear <laughs> the first two bars. <laughs> I walk without a scratch through a stained glass wall. That's, oh, that's a terrible line. Is that really in that song? Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, that's the best line. Could it be cloak and dagger? Could it be spring and fall? That's what it is. Oh. I walk oh. without a touch through a stained glass wall. Wow, you know that song really well. I couldn't, I couldn't yeah. give this. Because I never change when the, it comes on. <laughs> right. So that's that's what Nia says, right? He's, he's in a dream state. Yes. Yeah. That, I mean, that's, that, that's, a good, that's a good metaphor here. He just kind of, he's kind of floating through everything, mm -hmm. right? He doesn't seem to be, I mean, he's in the midst of all this, this, um, this fighting, uh, Virgil never once, I don't think, says that you know he gets nicked by an arrow or no. Right? He's, well, he's kinda, protected by the goddess, of course. Right? She's watching everything, 
but that just makes him just the, even more removed and aloof from right. all of this stuff. Right. Mm. Yep. So we're moving on then, right? Yep. Uh, he doesn't kill Helen because no. Venus says, "Don't do it." Don't do it. And then she's she's gone. And um, I mean, as we know, you know, Helen is ultimately taken back by Menelaus, and they right. make their way back to Sparta, and um, or Egypt, according to Stesichorus. Right, the right. alternative ending, but right, they get blown off course, and, yeah. and lost for a while. Right? We're not interested in that. No, and neither is Virgil. Um, so Aeneas says, "Okay, we're going to get out of here." But you know, the good man, family man that he is, he rushes back to his house. Right, and who's waiting for him there? Well, he's his father, mm-hmm. um, aged Anchises, his wife Creusa, and Ascanius slash Ulysses, mm. his little boy. Right, um, and so he's got to gather them all up and and get them out of here. And here's where we get that. That emblematic um, yes. scene of, of Roman piety, yep. where he he takes up his father on his shoulders, and his father grabs the panates, that's the, right, the household gods, and he grabs his little boy by the hand, and they and they run for it. And this is the uh, the Barocci painting, yes, the very famous Barocci painting where Creusa is separated from the group, yeah, uh, some social distancing by just a, a little bit. And uh, I was reminded also when renewing, uh, reviewing my notes for this, excuse me. That there's a Bernini group in the yeah. Borghese Galleria. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, one of four in that amazing place. Yes, and uh, of yeah. this very scene, Bernini, the the, I, in my opinion, the ultimate sculpture master yeah. of all time. I find him a little too precious. Do you really? Yeah, I like the masculine sensibility of Michelangelo. Hmm. Just the hulking nature of some of his portrayals. I see. I see. But yeah. still, I am a great admirer of Bernini. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, we can explore that, uh, that in later. a gurgle, in maybe? a gurgle, yeah. All yeah. right. <laughs> and I wonder. What, I was curious what you made of this. So you know, so Creusa follows at at a distance, you know, kind of lagging behind, and Virgil seems to make a, be making a point of that. Yes. Um, and so you know, uh, Aeneas has one arm, you know, for his father, another hand for his son. Why do you think he has Creusa kind of follow? He he kind of telegraphs the disappearance and the loss of Creusa. So. Obviously, but I'm wondering, you know, what did you make of that detail? Okay, so uh, have you been to the beach lately? Well, you went to the pool with your family. I went recently. to the beach on Memorial Day, so yeah. Oh, and so you went to the beach I too. Did. Yep. So, did you take sandwiches and um, foldable chairs and volleyballs and all that sort of thing? A we cooler? did. We did. Did you just, if I can ask? Yes. And maybe this would reveal my chauvinism. I don't yes. know. Yeah. Tried to keep it concealed for 86 episodes. <laughs> Did you uh, lug all of the heavy items yourself, or were they equally distributed between you and Mrs. Winkle? Um, I took the I took the the massive cooler. Okay. And the, most of the rest of the stuff was distributed amongst my boys. Okay. Yes. So you were carrying a lot of heavy stuff. Yes. Was Mrs. Winkle walking right next to you she, as you carried all that heavy stuff? She was. She didn't have to observe a little bit of a a distance to be outside of kind of the drop zone. No, there, there was no need. Not even for the sake of my argument. <laughs> But I've seen what you're you're describing. Right. Yes, that's a common scene. Yes. Yes. Okay. You got something on your shoulder. You've got the chair slung over your shoulder. You've got the baseball bat in one hand. The right. cooler. You're leading the dog. By the uh, maybe this is ridiculous, but <laughs> maybe it's just because if you're carrying an old man on one shoulder and you're fully armed and you're leading your son by the hand, is is the other person going to be able to walk very close? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I was I, again. I was I was thinking that it was it was loaded with something bigger, yeah. right? You should be impressed by how unpoetic and unimaginative my explanation is, because <laughs> <laughs> it's a pretty awful explanation. Well, I mean, I think that in some in some ways, because going right for the poetic and the metaphorical, in some ways, is you can. Uh, is can be can lead you to something ridiculous. Yes, that's true. So you know, it, sometimes applying Occam's razor and just saying, okay, what's the simplest explanation is the best one, right? 
Right. Um, but this one, it, it struck me, it reminded me so much of Orpheus and Eurydice. Yeah. And I think, I think at least at some level, Virgil wants us to make that kind of connection and said, we, okay, we know this story. The guy's leading us out of hell and uh, the burning it, ruins of Troy, in right. other words, yes, and and the woman is is the one is is, is falling behind. You know who's going to be the victim of the you know, the site taboo or whatever. Yes, yeah. of course, the site taboo. Site taboo, like a lot, like Lot's wife, Orpheus Eurydice. The taboo is the taboo associated with the particular site. Turning turning around, look looking where you're not supposed to look, leads to the tragedy. So sight as in one's gaze. Yes, yes, yes. S i g h t. Yeah, yes. see, this yeah. Is a problem with English. Yeah, it is. S-I-G-H-T, S-I-T-E, C-I-T-E, it goes on and on. Yeah, it's a mess. Homophones. <laughs> yeah. I think you're right, because, of course, Virgil covered this uh, episode at great length in book four of his Georgics. You remember that? Yeah, 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 right, right. So you could say even that the, the entire poem, those four books, are leading up to that story of uh, Eurydice's eventual death. Yes. All right. So uh, I think that, that making that connection here is uh, we're on good footing. I think so. Yeah. Right. I mean, it also struck me too as just in terms of the culture and the times, um, a kind of expected female deference to right. to the to the men, and maybe in some in some ways to could explain it. Sure. Um, well, we've talked about the notion of filial piety, right? Pietas mm-hmm. generally in filial piety, it goes to your father and to your son. Right. So, in a real sense, in a Roman family, although I'm sure that the actual personal dynamic was richer than this, the official word was, you know, the woman is not really integral. To the enterprise yeah she's there to have children and take care of others she she doesn't have a uh, identity of her own right right yeah no exactly but um at, at the same time when aeneas discovers that she's missing he goes running back into the into the flames yes and yeah. i don't think it's just out of a sense of duty no i think it's out of a sense of real love yes i i do too so aeneas is gathering he you know he, he takes his son he takes his father to this the cypress tree outside the city where he starts to notice that um, he's not the only one, right? And there's, it's the meetup place. It is the meetup place, right? So, and there's a an abandoned temple of Ceres out there. Mm-hmm. Um, what, again, a, a detail which puzzled me, but I don't, I, I don't want to go down these all of these rabbit trails. There's like a, a Starbucks billboard that's fallen apart yeah, halfway. Exactly right. Yeah, I, um, an advertisement for um, Walter Mondale's uh, campaign, <laughs> right? That takes me back to 1984. 84. Geraldine Ferraro. That's right. the running mate. And uh, got trounced. Yes, I think. Uh, 49 states to one. Wow, that's incredible. I think Mondale won his home state of Minnesota. That's incredible. <laughs> right. So those kinds of broken down things, but they are the rendezvous point, the meetup point. Yes. Uh, did you have one of these when you went to the beach? Uh, in our, case, in case you got separated, no, yeah. we didn't. It was it wasn't that much of an expanse of, okay. of territory. But, okay, uh, yeah, but like you know, back in high school, we we uh, you know there was a place. Hey, you know, let's meet up at the uh, you know uh, we all, the water the, tower, at the, the, the water tower, exactly. <laughs> right. This is right. the day before cell phones. Yes, so yeah. that that has changed everything. Imagine if Aeneas and company, you know, um, what kind of texts would Creusa have sent? Yes. Aeneas, right? Yeah. BRB, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, this probably never would have happened. Exactly. This yeah. this separation. Right. Have you seen that? I, I, um, I can't remember if we talked about it, but there was an article that came out that you know, if the characters in Seinfeld had 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 cell phones, oh, it would have solved every plot problem yeah. in almost every episode. Three quarters of the plots are just <laughs> done. just gone. Right. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. So they meet out there, and Aeneas starts to notice that uh, they're not alone. And little by little, there are these refugees from the city trickling in. 
and he starts to um, you know g- gather the um, uh, the group, the core group, which is going to mm-hmm. be the, the the people that get on the ships and and go off to find this new destiny. Mm-hmm. Is it a kind of a montage A team sort of moment? Yeah, kind of an in, in, uh, an arming scene. Right. Right. Exactly. I remember when they like the A team. They'd always. Uh, oh yeah. They'd they'd revamp the van. Correct. Right. Turn it into a tank. <laughs> exactly. Even though it was a tank at the end of the previous episode. <laughs> But it's different, though, because all of this is tinged with not optimism, but still a kind of wretched despair. Yeah, exactly. And a kind of PTSD. That's right. It's hard to get excited about a montage when there's so much suffering. Right, right. Yeah, usually montages are are there to kind of pump you up, right? Exactly. Rocky's getting into shape. That's right. Right, right, right. Punching the, the big slabs of meat. You probably don't like any songs by Survivor. Oh, in a kind of nostalgic kind of way. I don't think they're great songs, but I like them. Right, exactly. Right. I mean, I mean, who can, who, you can't not like Eye of the Tiger to some, okay. to some degree, right? I like it. I right. just don't try not right. to like it like you do. Right. But. Can I tell you a funny story about the, Eye of the, the, the actually the guy who sang Eye of the Tiger? Sure. So um, his name's Dave Bickler, okay. who's the original singer for Survivor. And I have a good friend, a, a former roommate of mine um, in Chicago, who writes um, uh, television and radio jingles. Mm-hmm. And he's a fantastic musician. And they, they were doing this... Um, they were doing this actually a Super Bowl spot, um, of course, uh, called Real Men of Genius. Uh, I think it was like from Budweiser or something like that, and it was uh, um, very sarcastic and very very funny. And they brought in Dave Bickler huh. to sing the tagline. And my friend Sam said to him, he says, "So what we're looking for in this? We want something kind of really kind of hammy and over the top in like 1980s." Right. And Dave's immediate response: "He goes, oh, that comes very naturally to me." <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that great? That's yeah. good. That comes very naturally. It does, me. yeah. That's wonderful. So, uh, Creus is missing. Aeneas notices in the midst of all of this. And I think you know, to his great credit, I mean, here we see, a kind of, I think, Aeneas, the action hero, right? He goes back into the city only to, uh, remember, he encountered Hector's ghost earlier. That's correct. And now he encounters the ghost of his own wife. Mm. And it's too late. She's she's lost. Um, there has to be communication with the dead yeah. in an epic. Yes. There has to be communication with the dead. Because otherwise, how are you going to know anything about destiny? Right. There's just too much information uh, that the hero needs to know in the context of an epic that he can't get from his immediate surroundings. Yeah. So the dead have to tell him things. Yes. And it happens a lot in these first few books. As we know from our two episodes, A Pain in the Nequia. Oh, way back. Odyssey 11. That's right. Episodes one and two. That was Odysseus's whole um, purpose in going to the underworld is Mm -hmm. I need information. Right. Right. Yeah, he goes and gets the essential information from Tiresias, which Circe tells him, but then he gets a whole lot more. Right, because he's so right. curious. He wants to visit Agamemnon and Achilles and all the famous women and all the crimes yeah. and so forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Aeneas, it's a little more convenient for him, although he will have his Catabasis Book 6. Yes. Which we'll reach in 2026, probably. <laughs> exactly. Here the ghosts appear to him and they volunteer information. Right. Which right. is a nice touch. It is a nice touch. Although, I, I, again, I wanted to get your opinion on this. Um, books two, and then also in book three too, there, it's it is heavy on the prophecy. I mean, everybody's prophesying, and there's constant. Um, and Kaisis is pouring libat- libations, uh, saying prayers. Aeneas is. I mean, it's so heavy on the kind of the religious correctness. And I got I got to be honest, it got a little old for me. Okay. And I'm just kind of wondering, you know, why does Virgil? I mean, it, it, this is where he's very unlike Homer. Um, you know, we don't see a lot of Odysseus um, making sacrifices at altars. It happens. Yeah, but the um, description of the preparation and the execution is relatively brief. It is very, it, it is very brief. It, it's more often kind of Athena pursuing Odysseus than the other way around. But here, 
it is, um, I mean, Virgil wants us to know that Anchises and Aeneas, they, you know, despite their circumstances, they are keeping the letter of these laws and these rights. And um, it's, it, it's Pietas. Is, is, that, is that all that it You're is? You're just not a Roman, Jeff. I, I, I know that. You're an early 21st century uh, post-pop culture kid. Maybe, maybe. It just seemed to kind of, I think, like, especially in book three, compared to, I mean, book one and book two, I mean, this is the the concert openers with "You give love a bad name and living on a prayer." Boom, <laughs> right? And then book three comes along, and it takes a dip. Okay. Now it might take a necessary dip in terms of like, okay, we can't have you can't have just rocking out the whole time. You gotta, no dip. You got book three takes no dip. You got it, it. It does. You're but, saying that book three is the fourth song on the first side of the album. Yes, exactly. That's right. Not necessarily a bad song. It could be just kind of the necessary pause. Before you crank it up to eleven again, I got it. Right, you can't you can't go full speed all the way through. You'll get exhausted. I really like three. Did, what did you like about it? I like all of the allusions and references to the Homeric and uh, the Homeric stories and Jason and the Argonauts. Mm-hmm. I really like that. I like the encounter on Cyclops Island. Uh, yeah. I like the fact that we're we're leading up to the death of Anchises. You know, which is revealed in that in that book. Yeah. Um, yeah, those things are are appealing to me. Hmm. Okay. All right. Well, I mean, we can discuss it further when it's, we, it's the instrumental bridge. It is. It is. The, it, I think it's it's necessary. It just. Um. I think it kind of has a little bit of the blaze of glory problem. Okay. Is that you know I'm the B O G P. Well, you know, is, is a blaze of glory is kind of is referencing Wanda dead or alive, um, in successful or unsuccessful ways, and depending on how you see it, those kind of tags to the the Homeric. It's almost like bringing back these these characters it's it's kind of an applause line it's kind of it's fan service um oh look there's the cyclops look and there's a uh, one of the guys from odysseus's crew that got left behind and and um but isn't this like the cameo in every sitcom and every movie yeah for example the marvel movies yeah all of them until he passed away stan lee has some bit role in all of them it did and fans love that i know but for me personally as that went on and i enjoyed them less and less and less okay when it comes to cameos i like the, the hitchcock approach you're on screen for two seconds and if you get it you get it if you miss it you miss it and it, it's gone. So, so book three is like that for you. It is kind of like that for me, right? So I'm total sidebar. I, yeah. I met a person last week whose first name was Cameo. Did you really? Yeah, a woman named Cameo. Isn't that interesting? It is interesting. I've never heard that. As I a, haven't either. This, this now ep- you have. This episode is full of new names. It yes, Johannette and Cameo. And Cameo. Wow. Very interesting. <laughs> All right. So I think we're getting a little ahead of uh, of ourselves here. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, Creusa comes to him and and uh, again tells him, hey. Um, you got to get out of here. You have bigger fish to fry. Right. As they can say. I can I read this little bit from Lombardo yeah, about do. the uh, the address of Creusa to her husband? Yeah. What good does it do, my sweet husband, to indulge in such mad grief? So she's appearing to him in a dream. Remember, well, in a vision as a ghost. Yeah. These things do not happen without the will of the gods. You may not take your Creusa with you. The Lord of Olympus does not allow it. Long exile is yours, plowing a vast stretch of sea. Then you will come to Hesperia, where the Lydian Tiber runs gently through fertile fields. You see, she's giving information. Yep. Right? She's the Google Maps. Yes. There, happy times, kingship, and a royal wife shall be yours. Dry your tears for your beloved Creusa. I shall not look upon the proud domains of the Myrmidons or Dolopians, nor go to be a slave for Greek matrons. I, a Trojan woman, and wife of the son of the goddess Venus, no, the great mother keeps me on these shores. Farewell. And keep well your love for our child. So I, apparently, so when you you die, 
you immediately are imbued with all of this this uh, this knowledge of yeah. of past, present, and future. Well, it could be like in Platonic terms, you get a whole you get a glimpse of everything. Yeah, right. Your soul gets a glimpse of everything. You don't have really deep knowledge, but it's broad. That's interesting. I mean, you compare that with with Achilles in Odyssey eleven. The only thing that Achilles That's wants right. to know is what's happening in the real world. Yes. Right? He doesn't know. What about my son? What about my father? Yep. That's all he wants to know. But his, so it seems like for Achilles, his, his, the worst thing about being in the underworld is that his knowledge is limited. Ignorance. And here right. Creus has been, de- been dead for two seconds and, and she's spitting out prophecies like Cassandra. Well, it could be that, nice reference. Yeah. It could be that there's a difference in the, you know, the, the mortal psychology of the two authors, no doubt. Mm-hmm. But it could also just be explained by the fact that Achilles is in his final resting place there, and the knowledge that you have, it starts to dissipate when your soul is consigned to its final spot. Okay, okay. So she has this knowledge now, yeah. but pretty soon she's going to be sent somewhere, and then that's it's it. It's going to be gone. You're going to be closed off. you got this brief liminal window. That's right. right. Uh, okay. <laughs> liminal window. <laughs> and speaking of liminal windows, it's time for the ads. It is. This episode of Ad Nauseum is brought to you by Ratio Coffee. Jeff, how are you doing with the new Ratio 8? It's great. I, I, I love it. Um, the the, the, the hand-blown uh, borosilicate. That's right. Uh, a carafe. It's just, it's it's beautiful. When you headed to the beach the other day, yeah. did you tank up on some coffee before you headed out the door? We had the coffee at, at home. Okay. Um, I mean, the, the uh, you know, the, that carafe is not something that you take out of the house. It's, no. It, it's something that's featured. Right. right? Exactly. But you keep, you keep it there not because it's not durable. Right. Oh, no. No. Right. No, no. You keep it there because you want it to be in a place of honor. Of course. It, it's beautiful. Even yes. my, my wife the other day just said, I, I love how this thing pours. Yes. There's just, uh, you know, I tend not to think about that kind of stuff. No. Yeah, yeah, pouring is pouring. Right. It's, it's not. <laughs> and so, no, I, I, I love the eight. It's such an elegant machine. Um, I just, I, I, in some ways, I, I don't feel good enough for it. Yeah. 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 To make a reference to a previous episode, would yeah. you say it's like the Millennium Falcon of coffee makers? It is definitely right. It, it, uh, it made the, the Kessel run in less than five parsecs, I believe. <laughs> so tell me something about the process in case people haven't listened to the previous 80 episodes. All right. So it's easy. You, you, you fill the tank. Okay. You get your cone. You put your grounds in there. And then you put that little lid on the top. Yes, you do. And then it's one touch. You hit the button. So you have to press a series of six or seven buttons. You have to decide between uh, different kinds of brews and different times, and you have to crank it up to get it going. And not at all. It's one button. One button. Right. It's not. It's, you don't have like the dial. The, okay. The, the flip switch. Nothing. It's just one button. One button. And then it takes you through the three stages. Okay. Uh, you got the. Bloom. What's, what's the first stage? You got the bloom. Okay. And that's where you know all of the the car the CO two is off gassed, mm-hmm. and you don't have to deal with it at all. Should we say bloom with a brew? <laughs> It's been a few weeks since we dropped that one. Yeah, it's a. I particularly liked that one. Yeah, the bloom of the brew. The bloom is followed by the brew stage. Yes, where you get the the scalding hot water poured over the ground down through the metallic veins. Yes, it goes. I think from zero to two hundred degrees Fahrenheit, like an old bicycle I had, uh, in just a matter of twenty seconds. It's it's quick. You've got to have really hot co- really hot water to make really good coffee. It's true. It's true. And then it it, it um the the it drips into your carafe. Right. Um. And but then, you have to stay there and watch it, right? You don't have to stay there and watch it. You can listen to it from the next room. But you might want to watch you it. You might want to watch it because it's a, it's a, just a beautiful thing to behold. Right. And then it's ready. It blinks three times and, and you're, you're set. That's all there is to it. That's incredible. And every morning, 
the, the perfect cup of coffee. Yeah, with your stainless steel and your walnut accents. Yes, the thing of beauty. It is a thing of beauty, and it's got a heft when you when you lots of heft. It's yep. a hulking flagon. Yep. So if uh, one of our listeners don't already own the Ratio 6 mm-hmm. or the Ratio 8, you, yep. you spent some time with the 6 also. Another great machine. You can attest to it. Yep. What should they do? They should go to ratiocoffee.com. That's R-A-T-I-O. And they can pick the 8 or the 6. And if they type in the, the coupon code ANCO89, yep. uh, code which is good until the end of June, um, they will get, what is it? 15% off. 15% off. That's um, right. Either machine. Check don't, it out. Don't wait. This episode also brought to you by Hackett Publishing. Hackett Publishing with offices in Indianapolis and in Cambridge, Massachusetts. They've been in business for, I believe this is their 50th year. Absolutely. Yep. We love their stuff. Um, I've got a, a number of their books on my on my shelf that I've used for personal reading and in my classes. Um, just great translations from all over the different um, um, areas of academia, especially in the classics. Uh, the Lombardo translation that we've been using a lot in these recent episodes is is um, is in the mix there. It's non-parel. It, yes. And uh, they have uh, LPSI. That's right. Uh, Dave's favorite Latin textbook you can get from Hackett. And uh, I'm just, uh, if I may interrupt here? No, please, go ahead. Okay, so I'm just looking at the website a little bit, and we have The Western Literary Tradition, A History of the Samurai, a source book. Your, your sons are fascinated by that, right? They would love that. Yeah. Yes. So why don't you buy it for them, I you big should. cheapskate? Yeah. <laughs> Seven Myths of Military History, Classics in Western Philosophy of Art, uh, The Essential Greek Historians, um, just incredible things. Plato's Laws, New Translation, The Hidden Berlin, you name it. You name it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, listeners, if you go to hackettpublishing.com, that's H-A-C-K-E-T-T publishing.com, uh, check out their, their immense catalog. It's not going to be difficult for you, for you to find stuff that you're going to want to read. Um, click on what you want, and if you drop in the coupon code AN2022, um, that'll get you uh, 20% off any order and free shipping. Which is incredible. Yeah. I don't know anybody who gives a 20% coupon and free shipping. No, you can't get that at uh, Nile.com. Or Nile.com. Mississippi.com. Nice. Oh, yeah, I get your drift. Yeah, exactly. I get your delta. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, you're not going to get that there. So. Definitely not. No. And you'd, you'd be supporting this podcast. Now, we're not going to beg and plead. Are we going to beg and plead? Uh, we're not there yet. No, sure. no. Okay. no. <laughs> but you got to check it out because, you know, this company is supporting... This uh, entertainment for your value, I hope you're getting something out of it. Uh, this would be a nice way to show some support. Yes, please do. This episode also brought to you by PopCityPopcorn.com. Jeff, we're popcorn people, aren't we? I'm a popcorn person. Yeah. And, and I know you are too. I am. So what is it that you like about this inflated grain? Uh, well, I've always, I mean, I've loved popcorn since I was a kid. Mm-hmm. But up until very recently, I was just a, you know, straight, Popcorn, salt, maybe a little butter, and that's it. Died in the bowl kind of guy. Right. And I thought that was kind of a, you know, I was, I was a purist, right? Right. And um, I kind of sneered at those who needed more. The froofy? The froofy stuff. Yeah. Right? But this company has changed my mind. Okay. Right. And how did they do that? It was the, it, for me, it was the Parmesan cheese one. No. Yes. Really? I thought, I'm not going to like this because I've had, you know, the Blowritos, um, you know, you know, flacho flanch flavor, and it it, it it makes me nauseous. So give us the backstory. What's the what's the book three of your journey to um, delight in Pop City popcorn? Um, well, it was it, it they they sent us the that wonderful box with a right. with a bunch of different samples in it, and I thought, okay, I like popcorn, and I'm going to grudgingly try some of these new flavors because it wasn't my thing. Yeah, and I tried the Parmesan cheese. So when I told you about this new sponsor, you yep. just kind of smiled politely, thinking, oh, okay, all right. No, I was into it because I love popcorn. Okay. I thought, I'm probably only going to like, you know, just the, their their basic level. Right. Right. But 
uh, it tasted so real. And I, re- I recognize that all that other stuff that I've tried that I didn't like, it was that it was some kind of, you know, chemical, yes. chemical, you know, fake, um, fake cheese that they put on there. Right. And when I tasted this, is that is the real deal. Yeah. I thought, okay, I can do this. Right. And then I tried many of their other ones. I thought, yeah, the same thing. The, you can tell that the ingredients are quality ingredients. Yep. And um, it just, it's, it makes for a great um, popcorn fibery experience. <laughs> Everything is top shelf. It is top shelf. I love the bacon cheddar. I yeah. love the movie theater popcorn. The butter rum caramel, that was a really delicious popcorn. You can actually taste the rum on the uh, on the popcorn. Yeah. All natural ingredients. They use the highest quality and uh, I think last time, Jeff, you probably didn't catch this, I said it was our first Michigan-based sponsor. Yeah. Uh, not true. We had another one. Oh, we did. Yeah, we won't mention them. Cause, oh, yeah. I remember right. now. I do, yeah. Nevertheless, they are a Michigan sponsor down in Kalamazoo, servicing... Kazoo, yep. Yeah, servicing the Western Michigan University football team with all of their great popcorn and the entire stadium. Fantastic. Yeah. My, my boys love the kind of the... Um, the more the sweeter, the sweet right? Blend. They love that two way way drizzle with the, the car- rainbow, the caramel, and the chocolate. Um, so yeah, whatever you're into, you're gonna find something that you're gonna like. So if you'd like to try out this great popcorn, you want to live the an life, as we say, with yeah. the drinking the fine coffee, the reading the great books, mm-hmm. and then using a napkin, and then eating the wonderful popcorn. Yes, you want to go to popcitypopcorn.com, and you want to enter this coupon code anpop twenty. That's A-N-P-O-P-2-0. Now, you may not want to associate ad nauseum and popcorn, but trust us, this works. This works. <laughs> and you will get 20% off if you are a first-time customer. Yes. So if you're a skeptic like I was, if you think, consider yourself a kind of a popcorn purist, you should try this. Absolutely. Because it will, it will change your life. All right, Dave. So as we get back into this, we are, we are, I, I just want to note, note for the audience, we actually finished book two. Nice. Or we're in, no, we're into book three. So we might be able to keep some of those promises we made at the top of the show. Crazy right. promises. Yep. All right. So in this book, um, Aeneas is, you know, they, he boards the, the, the ships with his, this last remnant of Troy. The good ship Lollipop. And they're, they're, um, they're following this prophecy, right? Yes. Um, but uh, this prophecy that they have heard, uh, at least Aeneas has heard, at least a couple of times now, and he's going to hear multiple times in this particular book, but they keep bouncing from place to place, not really knowing where they're supposed to right. land. The general the general direction is go west, young man. Yep. So, so Creuso, just before the break, Creuso says, Hesperia, the west, right? right? But she also mentions the um, where the Lyd- Lydian Tiber runs gently through fertile fields, mm-hmm. right? But, but I'm assuming that Aeneas has no idea what the Tiber is. Right. This is completely unknown lands to him. Right. But piece by piece, and and um, I think I, now that I'm thinking about book three, I think one of the things that I like, you know, I, I was telling you, I was kind of irritated by the repetition of this stuff, you know, um, prophecy after prophecy, sacrifice after sacrifice, but each prophecy adds a little bit more information, right? So it's, it's stringing together, it's building a bigger picture that's pushing Aeneas on. Um, the but, initial wanderings, the prophecies, yes, and the omens, and, and the omens. Yeah. So I had a great pun back there, but I didn't want to interrupt you, and, oh, and now I fear it's too late. Can you can you tell us anyway, or is this going to lose its punch? Probably, okay. but that would make it like all my other puns. <laughs> <laughs> and that is that you were saying Aeneas has no idea where the Tiber is, right? Yeah. He just knows it's out there. He can't even glimpse it. He he doesn't have the eye of the Tiber. Oh man. That's nice because you're trying to call back the survivor. It's, it's not just a pun; it's a callback. It's not nice. It stinks. <laughs> but I did it, and I'm not gonna. I'm, I'm not gonna apologize for Man, it. Man, I think you may have just given us the title for this episode. <laughs> right? I the Tiber. That's brilliant. That's gold, Jerry. All right. Um, so okay. So they they 
they make a they don't sail very far right so um if if um if, they go to thrace they go to thrace right? so if i'm just going to imagine a map so troy is in the kind of the northwest corner of what we would call turkey today, that's right near the dardanelles the, that's the, right the bosporus and they sail off to the west off to the west in a kind of a semi a, a crescenty way yeah. to the northwest and so thrace is is um like yugoslavia-ish area yeah. right yeah um it's not far right and so they stop and um it's famously wild territory right so in in in, in greek uh traditions Thrace is associated with Ares. Yeah. Uh, Home of the nomads, men on horseback, living a wild, savage kind of existence from the Greek perspective. Right. Exactly. And this is where Heracles has to go get the um, the, the flesh-eating horses of... Uh, yeah, Diomedes. Diomedes, The right. mares of Diomedes. Right. And so he, he's a, a king in, in Thrace. So it's it's a wild territory. But I, I this kind of struck me as, you know, I think unintentionally funny that Aeneas leaps off the boat and Virgil tells us that he just starts building his new city right away. And he's, he even has a name for it, um, Aeneadae, um, which is not a very clever name. No. Which I, 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 this is obviously a first draft. The followers of Aeneas, this is what it's going to be, right? That's that's who they're going to be and where they're going to stay. Right. Right. So but so I just think, I thought that, that struck me is that Aeneas says, okay, all right, um, we're a little bit west. You know, this, this seems to kind of, this fulfills what I was told. And he just starts kind of carving up the territory. And, uh, but this takes me back to that, the, the, the Quint article, right? I think he... He wants to stay close to home, right? He wants the you know the new Troy to be close to the old Troy. Right. He doesn't want to really. He's have not to, ready to really separate. No, he's not ready to separate. He's not ready uh, for kind of the sufferings that perhaps deep down he knows he's going to have to encounter. Hmm. Can I read a couple of lines uh, from the from book three here in, in the yeah. Latin of their first encounter with Thrace? Yes. Okay. Terra procul vastis colatur ma wartia compis. There's that reference as you were saying, right? Uh, the the fields of Mars, the plains of Mars, the land that that he claims. Yes. Thraces ardrant acri quandam regnata licurgo, hospitianti cum Troiae soci ique panates dum fortuna fuit. So we have the idea there that maybe this was the ancient place that offered kind of refuge to the panates and our allies. Maybe this is where we should go. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Like like Quint was saying, is that they're looking for something familiar. They're looking for something they can kind of, they can um, build a new foundation on top of an old foundation. Not knowing that they have to really start from scratch. From scratch. Right. And um, but I, what I also um, and, I'm, and as we're talking, I'm coming around on book three. I'm, okay. But I'm, I'm liking this more and more. I really liked your comment about uh, much earlier in this episode that Aeneas takes the second exit. Yeah. Right. It's like looking for a hotel late at night when you're on a family road trip. Yes. If you don't plan ahead, which I never like to plan ahead because <laughs> I don't want to take the spontaneity out of it. So it's going to be even, even when it comes to hotels. Well, you want to see, I have often regretted it. That's how you wind up at the Bates. Yes, I know. <laughs> but the idea is let's just see how far we can drive. Gotcha. I got you. And I, I like that unfettered. You know, it doesn't it doesn't work well. I'll, I'll admit that it's a failure. But. You know, is it, am I going to stay at the um, the Better Western? Right? Yeah, the the Motel Nine. What's what's it going to be? Right, right, right. And you don't know. And I think that is a little bit of what Aeneas is feeling, right? Mm, yeah, because it's got to have a pool for the kids. Yes. Is the breakfast going to be something that is obviously phoned in, or is it going to be real? Is it going to have the, the waffle maker? That's what I was. I'm you like looking. the waffle I, maker? I do like the waffle maker. Yeah, I like the waffle maker where one of the um, ingredients you can add is uh, M and M's. <laughs> you load those into yeah, your yeah, yeah. waffle and the kids love those yeah so. yeah great way to start the day that's right so yeah. that's what aeneas is facing where, yeah. where are we going to stay and right. it's not just like odysseus where it's he's really only concerned about himself right mm -hmm. this is again the funneling idea we've talked about before throughout the odyssey you start with a big group 
it's funneled down to just one individual who's naked on the shore. Yes. That's it. Aeneas is a very different hero. He's, he fails if he doesn't bring everyone safely into room 207, you know, on the second floor with all their luggage and all the kids' stuffed animals and their Game Boys. It's, it's all got to get in. Exactly. And the door has to close. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a, um, I think that's a, that's an excellent distinction, um, which separates him from, from, from Odysseus. Not original to me, but I, th- I think it bears repeating often. Yeah. 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 Uh, another interesting thing I find about uh, book three is how, in, in many ways, how quickly fate, destiny, or whatever you want to call it, quickly shows Aeneas, right. this is not where you're going to stay. And in this case, um, there again, uh, Aeneas is being very religiously correct. He's going to make a sacrifice. Yes. He's going to thank the gods. And he goes up on this, on this, um, this knoll, yep. this, uh, this hillock. Uh, to find some greenery for the altars. Mm. You, know, you got you to garland your altars. Yes. And this is one of the most gruesome, it's, disturbing scenes. It, it, it is so gross. I can remember reading this with my kids when they were younger, and it was, it was very shivery and spine-tingling. <laughs> you read this to your children? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. I mean, you got to read the whole thing. It's, we read an excerpted version, yeah. and we read some of the Latin here. But wow. you want to read uh, a yeah. little bit of the Lombardo? Yeah, so um, this is the Lombardo, yeah. Nearby was a mound. Its summit crowned with cornell shrubs and bristling myrtle. I went over to it and bent down to pull some greenery from the soil to deck the altars, when I witnessed an awful portent. The first bush that I uprooted oozed drops of black blood that clotted on the ground. A cold horror numbed my limbs, and icy fear coursed through my veins. Still, I pulled up another sapling, trying to understand the mystery within. This one bled too. Greatly troubled, I prayed to the nymphs, and Father Mars, Lord of Thracian Fields, to lighten this omen and turn it to good. But when I pulled with greater effort upon a third branch, struggling on my knees in the sand, should I speak or be silent, I heard a groan from deep within the mound. So, so it keeps getting worse. So this is one of the spots where Aeneas, you know, people are saying, come on, Aeneas, are you, are you very bright? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're just going to yeah. keep, keep pulling branches as blood comes out and someone's screaming from deep below? Right. Yeah, you're, you're, you're kind of asking for it. Right. Right. And so we learn... That um, this groan um, is it belongs to a certain Polydorus. That's right. Line forty-one, mm-hmm. if I may. Quid miserere ya lacaras yam parca saputo. Ouch! Quid miserum. I could use stronger language here, right? <laughs> Aeneas, are you rendering me lacaras? You tearing me to uh, to pieces? Uh, leave my burial spot alone, yam yeah. parca saputo. Yeah. So we yeah it, uh, we so we learned that this was a guy. That the Trojans sent as an emissary to to uh, Thrace, right, to ask for help. Well, and also remember, I think that correct me if I'm wrong. Priam sent him away with gold. Yes. And the idea was, if the entire kingdom falls, this was his insurance policy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If the entire kingdom falls, right, at least um, Polydorus will have some of the money left, and he could refound the Trojan line in another place. It's like when you go to the beach, mm-hmm. right, and you got 30 bucks in your pocket and some loose change, you parcel it out among the family, you give one to your kids, here's a 10, hold on to that, so if, if I lose mine, we can still get ice cream on the way home. There you go. There you and go. Uh, so Polydorus is the insurance policy, common to trade royal children, up even into the modern era, right? So the, you know, the czars would send their kids to Paris to be educated. Right. And the French would send their kids to London, and the English would send their kids to Berlin. And it's not not just to learn another culture, but it's a little bit of uh, insurance because if you grow up in that environment, you, you're going to treat well those you know you were with. And in the worst case scenario, like in the old days, if you ever came to conflict, 
the killed the children to be the first to be killed. Right. And that was a deterrent to open conflict. Sure. And it also led to all kinds of you know, intermarriage between yes. these royal families, right? And um, which right. Made, you know, trying to keep track of these royal family trees in, in Europe in the, you know, the, in the 17th and 18th century, just a, in a, an, an incredible mess. Right. Well, I, apparently the the, uh, the woman who celebrated her, not the Jubilee, what is it? It was it was the Jubilee of her, it was her 50th year. Of, no, no not 50th. 50th. It was like 70th. 70, 75. Platinum of, Jubilee. Of her reign. If I'm not mistaken, these are individuals from German stock. These are these are not native English. The Windsors? English. Yes, they're not native English. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, well, that's exactly what we're talking about right. here. Right, right. So Polydorus is killed. And for the money, for the money, and um, and now he's he's buried in this in this mound, and but yeah, it's just the idea that Aeneas, when he pulls up that the the small tree, he's a, he's ripping the body of this. It's just it's so gruesome, and Polydorus basically tells him, no, this is this is not a friendly land. You are not going to find allies here. This is not a new home for Troy. You like everybody else that tells him, you got to move on. Keep on moving. At this point, Aeneas prays, he's a pious guy, and Apollo gives him a revelation, right? Yes. Move on, but where should they go? Right, so they, they wind up on the island of Delos, right? So the sacred sacred island of the, the birth of, of uh, Apollo and Diana. That's right. And um, again, as we expect now, Aeneas, he's, he prays to the god. Right. And, and especially this god, a god of oracles. And um, Apollo's oracle... Again, tells him, yes, you have a destiny. You're, yes, you're going to go to the West, um, but he's very vague about the particulars. And this is where um, uh, his father uh, pipes up and says, you know, I think that what the oracle is referring to is is Crete. Yes, let's go to Crete. Let's go to Crete. And and Kaisi says this because he says, well, I know there's 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 a story that uh, Tucer, one of our original ancestors, was from Crete. Mm-hmm. Um, he makes again, like like Quint argues, makes some kind of linguistic connections between Mount Ida. And, and and Roman and Roman traditions and and and, uh, and Roman ancestors. He says, "I think that's clear. This is where we got to go." Much like Heinrich Schliemann, yeah, who referred to Crete as a very rookery, a veritable rookery of nations. <laughs> did he? Did he say that? Yes, okay. in German, whatever the German equivalent is. Yeah. Maybe he said it in English because he could speak all those languages. Right, right. A veritable rookery of nations because it's located between Egypt and Europe. Yeah, and uh, so then our man Sir Arthur Evans went there and found that civilization so yeah. this is an old idea that creed is a happening place it is a happening place right and so if it is a rookery of nations you're going to find something you can connect with there correct right, right. and so and so in Kaisi's things oh yeah uh, uh, wrongly um, because they, there seem to be these these kind of personal and historical connections with Troy that might be the obvious uh, next obvious place to stop right um, so they go there and once again, uh, Aeneas leaps out of the boat, and he's he's making laws. He's, in he's drawing res- boundaries. In right. response to a rumor, though, right, that Crete has been deserted. Right. So this is perfect. So it's a kind of a tabula rasa. Yep. The the, the tyrant is gone. He's away. So it's that's another reason. Well, okay, the the gods have vacated this place for us. Mm. Right. You can kind of. I think you can. I, I sympathize with Aeneas. Yes. Um, uh, of not wanting to to drag this out. There's a vacancy sign, yeah. you might say. Right uh, on the next off ramp, or That's a few off ramps down the road. They must have a non-smoking room, <laughs> right? And so, but um, when they get there, almost immediately, plague and famine. Um, the crops are ruined. People are dying from disease. Again, fate is not very subtle 
about its its prompting. Right. Yeah. So I'm going to keep carrying on this metaphor until the audience is thoroughly bored with it. Go for it. You get into the room and there's a bucket for your ice, but no glasses. No, no glasses. Right. What am I supposed to do with that? Right. And you, then you go down the hall and does the ice machine work? No. No. no do you know the old trick? What is the trick? Well, the trick is if you are carrying um, soda in cans which is something that I did as a kid. Yeah. Because you're not going to buy expensive soda in a restaurant. Of course not. Get it at the grocery store. Yeah. You can put it in the back. You're not going to like this. <laughs> you can put it in the back of the toilet in the part, I don't know, it's at the bell, the tank. You, you, you'd leave it floating in the tank? In the tank. Yeah. Not, not the bowl. All right. <laughs> In the tank because that's cooled water. Oh, okay. And it cools them down nicely. Wow. So you put them there in the upper deck. Right. <laughs> you did this? I've never heard of anyone doing this. No comment. Okay. It's a common trick. It's a common trick. All right. But that's what you do if, like Aeneas, you get to Crete, right? And there's no ice machine. You see a no vacancy sign, a non-smoking room, perfect. But when you get inside the room in 211, you find bucket, no glasses, no ice machine. Right. What right. are you going to do? Right. In his case, it's plague and famine. Famine, yeah. And so, once again, he turns to the gods. And then this, this time, um, if for those keeping score of, of, kind of who's giving prophecies, um, the Penates seem to come alive in a vision and speak to him directly. And here, again, we get a little bit more detail. Again, it's the same ideas. You got This is not the place. You got to move on. Your destiny's in the West. But here, they, the Penates say, no, your father was kind of had the right idea, but your real ancestors are from Italy. That's where you need to go. So why couldn't they have just said that back in Thrace or maybe when they were rendezvousing outside burning Troy at the Starbucks billboard? Well, I think it's probably for the same reason that Athena doesn't tell Telemachus, hey, your dad's on this island. He'll be home in a few days. Just sit tight. She draws it out. She draws it out and sends him on this, this journey because she's got to make a man out of him. It's character building. And so I think this is kind of that classic... Um, pathon mathon. You, you okay. have to suffer your way into truth. Oh, yeah. 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 Pathemata mathemata. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yep. So um, I think that's what's going on here. And so you know, Aeneas has to kind of learn how to be, learn how to suffer, mm. learn how to endure. He's got to learn how to, how to lead. And he couldn't do that if he just stopped in Thrace um, at the at the Bates Motel and, right. and made the best of it. So off they go. Thrace, Delos, Crete. They leave Crete, yeah. right? Yep. And uh, next stop, Pottersville. <laughs> oh yeah, that that great old tune. Yes, yes. Here, the next stop is they're in the um, it's in the in the the, the strophades, the strophades. Yeah, the, the I think it's strophades. Strophades. There you go. Um, these islands, which I I I think are believed to be kind of near the vicinity of, of Ithaca. Okay, they're kind of com coming up around the bend of of the Peloponnese. That's right. That mulberry and inhabited by the harpies. The harpies. Yep. And um, and so here again. Uh, they're thinking about, hey, maybe, maybe here, um, but they're quickly encounter the harpies, and Aeneas sends his men to attack. They're disabused of that notion very quickly. How would you describe the harpies? Well, they're these kind of creepy bird women. Yes. So they have the bodies of birds and the talons of birds, but they have the heads of, of women and the partial torso of a woman. Yeah. The, the talons, you say, right? The claws, the beaks, the wings, and they they perch over entrances. Right, mm -hmm. I always envisioned them as giant pigeons. Yeah, and you sit you sit down in the park to a picnic, and what do they do? They immediately swoop down and mess all over your picnic and and 
grab your pizza box and rip it to shreds and spread it all over the lawn. Well, you've been you've been dining with some angry pigeons. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying pigeons do this, yeah. but you know how how pigeons have a way of leaving their mementos in places you don't want them. Yeah, exactly. So imagine if the pigeon was 400 pounds, right, and had intelligence and will and design and so forth. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. would be awful. It would be awful. And so, I mean, there is kind of a, a dangerous kind of physical threat with the harpies, but as you, uh, Virgil, just like as you have with Apollonius of Rhodes in the story of J- his version of the Jason story, um, they're just gross. Yeah. They, 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 they stink. They're oozing and foul. Yes. And that's really the, um, that's the real kind of horror mm. of the harpies is they, they, uh, they just leave their disgusting smell and remains behind. Can, can you uh, read some of the Lombardo translation of that portion? Because it's really interesting. Yeah. Um, so this is again, again, Aeneas narrating. Delivered from the sea, I first made sure in the... Um, and, um, how do we say these names again? Strophides. Strophides, sorry. Strophides. I think the, of like Cyclades and Dodecades. Yeah, and, I keep seeing the the the, uh, the syllable with the wrong emphasis. That's all right. Right. Um, the Greek name given to the islands is set in the Ionian Sea, which dark uh, Salino and the other harpies made their home after they fled in fear from the tables they kept in Phineas's palace, which is a reference to Jason. Right. Um, no monster, no curse, no plague, more, more grim ever raised itself from the water of sticks. These birds have maiden faces. They drop foulest excrement. Their hands are claws and their faces are pale with hunger. That's awful. It's awful. It's, it's, it's creepy. Messed up their ships probably too. They just could not get that off the grill no matter how much they scrubbed. No, you, you could get the, the you get the, the, the wiry steel bristle brush. With the high power sprayer yeah. and the soap. It's stuck. Nothing doing. No. Yep. Um, so the, the Aeneas they, and his men try to attack and they quickly realize they can't lay a finger on the on the harpies. And then um, their, the lead harpy, this Seleno, uh, perches up on a rock. And what do you know? Hey, guess guess what? Another prophecy. And so she tells him, yep, you got to head west. Uh, she says, she mentions Italy like the previous prophecy. How, how come normal people in the epics never have any information to share? Why does it have to be a dream, a dead person? Uh, it has to be a vision. It has to be the penates. Yeah. Or in this case, a monstrosity like the harpies. Why, right. why do they have all the info? I don't know. I find it kind of irritating. Um, I think this is one of the things that was bugging me about book three is that it's 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 repetitive. I mean, every I guess every episode builds on on itself, but to me it becomes less believable. Now you said that book three was growing on you. It was growing on me, but this 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 particular thing. So you know, why does a this gross monster? Suddenly, why is this monster suddenly prophetic? It's supposed to be the incongruity. What? But why? Well, because it's shocking and it gets your attention. You think that's what's going on here? Instead of the person you would expect to have the knowledge, the wise, attractive older man or older woman who studied and sat somewhere and, you know, experienced in the world. And it's the incongruity of this monstrous, foul, nasty creature being the key to success. Okay. I can see. I, I think that, yeah. All right. I like that. I think there's maybe also this sense that Aeneas's destiny is so powerful that it's being screamed from all screamed from all corners of the world. Okay. Like even a, a creature like the harpies can't help but but be a medium for this very powerful prophecy. Well, I think of it kind of like uh, uh, Saul going to the Witch of Endor, right? That's not where you're supposed to get your information. Oh, I see. Yeah. But it's incongruous. It is con- the incongruous. The great the great king has to ask a, a, an anonymous witch for some kind of information. Right. Okay. And but there is a uh, a fitting coda to the prophecy because she uh, she ends it with a curse. Okay. She says, okay. Yeah, listen, I'm I'm affirming your destiny, but she says, however, because you attacked us, um, 
you are you will not be able to build your the walls of your new city until your hunger drives you to eat your own tables. Eat your own tables. That's the curse. So now we have this riddle. What okay. on earth does that mean? Right. Right. And it's not going to be fulfilled for several several books. I think it's book seven where the fulfillment comes. Where they do eat their tables, mm-hmm. right? Like some sort of like Panera bread bowl. I think so. Do you know Perkins? I don't know Perkins. There used to be a Perkins in Grand Rapids, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, yeah, Perkins. Perkins yeah. was famous for the bread bowl. Right, so the, you, you not only eat the, the broccoli cheese. Right, the but you, soup. You eat the bowl itself. I would just say you better eat the soup before you eat the bowl. Yeah, that's that's smart. Move, that, would right? be the, that would be the order you want to follow. Right. Or you remember that Subway... Uh, the flatitza. The flatitza. Right. It's like eating a table. That's right. right. It, it has the same consistency and flavor. Yeah. Appetizing? <laughs> no. No. No, no, no. Not that well, they, they won't be a sponsor. Let's face it. Right. Hey, we, we got to wrap this up, man. We do, but do we want to tease the audience for next week? Yeah. What's coming up? Well, next week is going to be the Cyclops. So we're going back to the Odyssey. Didn't we cover this already? No, 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 no. no. That was a popular episode. That it's was... all fun and games. So someone gets poked in the eye. Yeah. Yeah. Long, yeah. long about... Um, 32, I think, yeah. 33, somewhere in there. Okay, okay. Yeah. And oh, so we're talking about Aeneas has his own encounter with the Cyclops. He does, because okay. he's following about two weeks behind Odysseus. Yeah. It's brilliant. And to set it up, can I read the Latin and then you read the translation? Yeah. All right. Let's do it. Terscapuli clamorin ter kawa saxa dedera, terspume li set rorantia widimus astra, interia fessos ventus cum sola reliquit. Now it's going to get creepy. Ignardri queviaki clopad labemur ordris. Very nice. And this is uh, the translation I'm about to read is not Lombardo, but it is it is yours, right? Yeah, it's a little it's a little more than self serving. Let's be honest. I translated this I don't know 15 years ago. All right, all right. Let, yeah, let, let, well, let's hear it. But if if you read it, you yeah. know you got to make fun of me a little bit. Take okay. me down a few notches. Okay. All right. I'll see. What, well, I don't know if there's anything funny in here, but we'll all right. see it. Three times the rocks from Hollow Cove echoed back their shout. Three times the spray recedes as dripping stars shone out. While wind went slack and sun set down, exhausted at our oars, heedless of the deadly path, we glide to Cyclops shores. That's got there's some nice iambics in there. Thanks. Yes. I like the I like the Cyclops Shores part, I'll be honest. Yes. That's great. Yeah. But so, that's for next time. That's for next week. Let's hope the audience feels a an adequate sense of suspense. Yeah. Is Aeneas going to be eaten alive by polyphemus the cyclops or does he escape we'll have to find out next time to wait till next time tune in all right so we got uh we got some people to thank yes some we got some um uh we have a a parting shot to read we have some emails and stuff but before we do that dave tell us a little bit about the moss method i'll be very brief if you want to learn how to read greek classical attic homeric uh, ionic like herodotus you need to go to mossmethod.com, check out my free offerings, and then you could sign up for the course. It's $325, featuring in Module 1, 40 video lessons and 40 assignments and six quizzes and two exams. Let's face it, there's no reason for you not to learn Greek. It's a good value, and I know, Jeff, that you like the office hours. You've threatened to photobomb them several times. Yeah. One of these days, I'm gonna be. I'm gonna pop in there. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna take over and just ruin it for everybody. No, no, that would be great. You're gonna yeah. be the harpy in the office yes, hours. Yes, exactly, exactly right. Yes, yes. But yeah, your ch- foul excrement everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Check this out. It'll take you from neophyte to erudite. 
We also need to thank Mishka Fernando, who is uh, the young woman who puts together all of this so nicely, our sound engineer. Thank you, Mishka, for doing great work. Yes, we also uh, thanks going out to Scott Vinzen and Ken Tamplin for the great music that you hear uh, at the beginning, at the end, throughout the the episode. And if you're interested in Bon Jovi, whom we have been talking about Mm -hmm. a bit, uh, you can check out one of Ken's uh, vocal reactions to the... um, the Bon Jovi then and now. If you like that kind of stuff, it's pretty interesting. It is pretty interesting, but with Bon Jovi, the the now is pretty depressing. So I'm just, well, just warning you. Maybe he'll be a guest sometime on the podcast. John? Yeah, come on. Can't, I can't even speak anymore. You got to aim high. All right, all right. Um, yeah, and if you wanna if you wanna shout out, if you wanna uh, let us know what you like, what you don't like, you an idea for an episode, we love that kind of stuff. We had a lot of international shout outs recently. Yeah. We had New Zealand, New Zealand, Tasmania, Australia, Scotland. Yes, uh, right, right. So, um, fantastic. Some, how about some hometown folks? Right, here, right. Um, we welcome it all. So, don't hesitate to write to us. Write to Dave at Dave at Don't forget the V. Or Jeff at adnauseum.com. Don't forget the V in adnauseum. Yeah, check out the the website adnauseum.com. You can pick up a T-shirt. Yeah. With a great Erasmian slogan, "Quai no kent do kent." Yes. Um. Uh. Yeah. Check it out, and and, and as always, let us know um, what you're thinking, what you like, what you don't like, and uh, we'd love to get to know you. All right. So next week. Um, as we already teased, um, more of, of book three. That's right. And some uh, some really interesting Odyssean tags coming uh, coming up. You're not going to want to miss that. No. And Dave, you have our parting shot today. Yes. This is from A.A. A. Freda uh, from a novel called Goodbye, Rudy Kazudi. And I like this. It's, you know, fits. Uh, we were talking about ethnic profiling last time with the Greeks. <laughs> yes. I guess this is more of the same. But hey, I didn't write this stuff. I just think it's interesting. Yep. Three Italians sitting around a kitchen table without food or drink is a sure sign of trouble. Agreed. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.